It was a contentious presidential election that threatened to split apart the United States. But a visit from an old friend reminded Americans of who they were and what their revolution was all about. That was in 1824, when Marquis de Lafayette from France was invited back to America. A generation earlier, he served as a hero in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. Lafayette was a close friend of George Washington and even named his son after him. On his return to America a generation later, Lafayette was welcomed back as an old friend by more than half the population of New York City. Author Sarah Vow believes that Lafayette still has a lot to tell us about who we are as a nation. She's written Lafayette in the somewhat United States and joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to remind us of one of the great figures in the founding of our nation who just happens to come from France. Sarah, welcome. Hi. Hey, you know, when you talk about Lafayette, he's, he's a figure in the Revolutionary War, but in your book, you, you make a big deal about an amazing scene in 1824. That was a generation later, a generation after we won our independence, and you describe how half of New York City came out to see him, to welcome him back from France. Why would it be such a big deal for a Frenchman to come back a generation later? He did come back as an older gentleman, and he was invited back by President Monroe on the eve of the 50th anniversary of the Revolution. So kind of to start ginning things up for the patriotic fervor, you know, that I guess those of us who lived through the bicentennial will recall a bit, you know. He was also at that point in 1824 when he arrived um, back in New York Harbor, he was the last living general from the Continental Army. So he was he was the last of those guys. And James Monroe was the last president who was one of the founding fathers. You know, James Monroe, had he had crossed the Delaware with George Washington and all that. So it was kind of a, a celebration of what the country had become. But there was a, this definite nostalgic element to it. And also, because he was a Frenchman and he came over as a teenager to volunteer with Washington's army, he kind of belonged to everybody. So there wasn't, there, he wasn't a northerner or a southerner, you know. And also he had kind of been almost adopted as George Washington's son or son figure. And so um, he was so well-beloved and, and he, he was basically a, a celebrity. And it was a huge big deal that it was a tour around all of the states. And every night was a party there was a, a souvenir racket, you know, with like gloves with his face on them or commemorative plates or songs, you know. Every town, he would enter into a town and there would be a, a new song written about his entrance into that town. And it was a really big deal. And in fact, that's kind of how I got onto the topic because I once went to Herman Melville's house in uh, the Berkshires. And on display in one of the cases is the little dress that Melville's wife wore as a baby when she was presented to Lafayette when he was in Boston. And and I also didn't know about this return trip. And so it turned out to be this huge touchstone for a whole generation of Americans. So in 1824, was, was the country in need of, was it, I mean, we're always thinking about how divided our country is now. Was there a sense that this man, he's, like you said, he's not North, he's not South, he didn't represent a particular party. He just represented America, didn't he? Yeah, he landed here pretty much smack dab in the middle of what's arguably the most rancorous presidential election in our history, the election of 1824. And it was this very weird election where for the first time people were going to have to elect a president who wasn't a founding father. 
And in fact, that election had to be decided in the House of Representatives because there huh. wasn't Andrew Jackson won the popular vote. Imagine what that's like. Someone could, you know, win the popular vote and not become president because um, he didn't have a clear electoral majority. And so it had to be decided in the House of Representatives. So that whole trip as Lafayette's kind of traveling around, there's all this uh, really mean commentary in every newspaper and uh, the whole country's divided. And when the election was after the election happened and there wasn't a president you know, they run into these Jackson supporters in Pennsylvania and they're like, oh, if the House doesn't give Jackson the presidency, we're taking our bayonets to Washington. So this sounds kind of parallel to Trump, although Trump won and Jackson, who was the famous populist back then, he lost. Yeah. I mean, it kind of pains me to say this as someone who's part Cherokee, but that's sort of a, an insult to Andrew Jackson. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it was... Everyone was all up in arms. And in fact, uh, Lafayette had this young secretary who was with him who wrote this great diary of their trip. And and they meet these guys in Pennsylvania who are like, if our guy doesn't win, we're marching on the Capitol and we're bringing our bayonets. And then the uh, House of Representatives in what became known as the corrupt bargain gave John Quincy Adams the presidency. And there was this great moment that Lafayette is there to witness in Washington when there's the party for Adams and Jackson comes in and everyone's like, oh, my God, what's he going to do? And he goes over and he shakes Adams' hand. And at that moment, the secretary sees those guys who said, we're bringing our bayonets, you know, and he goes over and asks, like, so should I be ready for you guys to, you know, start shooting up the joint. I'm paraphrasing. He was French. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and they're like, oh, no, no. You know. So it was uh, weird, that, a... Weird, that was just talk. And the... Well, uh, we dodged a bullet then. Literally, yeah. Our literally. Whole country. I mean, the Frenchmen, and these are guys who had just lived through the French Revolution, are so worried about all this rhetoric. But uh, the Frenchman, he said, in America, the violence in the newspapers stays in the newspapers, which wasn't so true of... Revolutionary no, yeah, France. No way. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Sarah Vowell, and her book is Lafayette in the Somewhat United States of America. Now, he's a Frenchman, and he's so important in American history. This this is quite unique. Was he just, like, great on the battlefield, or, or what was his magic back in the Revolution to be such an influential figure? He was very young. He was 19 when he came over here. He came from a military family. His family was involved in the French army going back to Joan of Arc and the Crusades. And at that time, when our revolution started, Europe was momentarily at peace. And so all of these professional soldiers in France, they needed a job. And so they were coming over here in droves. And Lafayette was unique in that he was a nobleman. And so these are noble sons that have their, they're ready to go to war. And there's just there's nothing going on. Must be frustrating. Right. I mean, it was definitely <laughs> frustrating for George Washington, who is like, this is evil. These guys have no skin in this game. I don't know what to do with them. They come over. They don't speak English. They want to be officers. And that's how he felt about Lafayette at first, too. But Lafayette was just so gung-ho. I mean, this kid just wanted in the fight. And he just was constantly volunteering. And he worked so hard. And, and you know, at this point in the revolution, through the whole revolution, through the war, Washington's troops are just deserting him in droves. And here's this kid who just wants to do as much as he can. Hmm. So now, could you say no Lafayette, no United States? I mean, is it possible? I wouldn't that... say that. I will. I am confident in saying no help from France, no United okay. States. What are some examples of 
the personalities that you were surprised to find as you researched your I book? I mean, one thing about George Washington, a person I never really identified with that much, I one th- reason he and Lafayette became so close was because pretty much the whole war, Washington's supposed friends are trying to fire him and replace him with someone else. So that's when I sort of identified with Washington the first for the first time, you know, especially coming out of journalism. You're just always sitting around waiting to get fired. And that was basically Washington's experience. And here, besides Lafayette was so, you know, committed to the war, he was also just committed to Washington. And their letters read like love letters. That's basically what they are. Washington needed Lafayette. Oh, yeah. I mean, he needed bucking up, let's say. What, he was like a 19 years old, just kind of a French swashbuckler? Yeah, but he, I mean, he had trained at Versailles. So he actually had more military training than most of the Continental Army at 19. Fascinating. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sarah Vowell, and her new book is Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Holger's on the line from Jefferson in Oregon. Holger, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Uh, My question is this. I read all about Lafayette and Washington. I've been to Mount Vernon and and various things, but I have never found out what happened to Lafayette during the French Revolution. Uh, Because he was a nobleman, he didn't get his head chopped off. uh, You know, where was he all this time? Was he in exile? Yeah, not getting his head chopped off was a definite goal of his. And he succeeded, unlike some of his friends. So what happened was, because Lafayette was the symbol of revolution when he comes back to France, and he's this, you know, hero, and he was one of the people involved in the beginning of the French Revolution. But remember how the French Revolution kind of takes that turn, and it gets really— They start cutting off their heads of their own friends. Yeah, it gets really ugly and uh, more and more radical. And, you know, if you have any kind of um, association with the clergy or— the nobility, you know, yeah, I just made the symbol that's no use on a radio <laughs> of the head. I'll do the sound effect. And so Lafayette, he tried to escape France, and he was caught, and he gets thrown into this uh, Austrian prison. And he was in prison for several years until uh, Napoleon busted him out. Lafayette's wife's family, she was also even fancier nobility than him. A lot of her relatives were killed in the guillotine. And after the revolution, when they came back, she helped establish the cemetery in Paris called Picpus Cemetery. It was basically just a mass grave where a lot of nuns and nobility were thrown into this pit. And she helped establish it as a cemetery. And every 4th of July, there's this very patriotic, (laughs) solemn ceremony where the French military and representatives from the American military change the American flag that flies over Lafayette's grave. So Lafayette's grave is still a a place of um, honor and respect? Yeah. Supposedly, he was buried under some dirt from uh, Bunker Hill. And you know, the famous thing about that cemetery was um, when our expeditionary forces under General Pershing come come to France's aid in World War One, one of uh, Pershing's officers famously said, Lafayette, we are here, because Lafayette becomes the symbol of Franco-American friendship, which has its ups and downs through history. But more than 100 years later, Lafayette, we are still here. Mm-hmm. So, But basically, he was um, pretty lucky not to lose his head. Yeah. But he spent a few years in prison. He did. There you go, Holger. Thank Bye, you, Holger. Sir. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sarah Vowell, her book, Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. Sarah, it's interesting to think about, from an English point of view, 
What did they think when they looked at America, how we were fighting the revolution? I mean, I think, you know, the old story is they just thought they were a bunch of bumpkins. But as early as 1775, the British leadership is writing back to uh, London saying, you know, this is going to be harder than we thought. And my, in a way, my favorite hero from the Revolutionary War is Henry Knox because he was this kid who was a bookseller. He owned an independent bookshop in Boston. He knew there, were, there was all this ordinance like uh, cannons and artillery and stuff at Fort Ticonderoga, which uh-huh. is, you know, hundreds of miles away over the Berkshire Mountains. And when Boston was under siege, he told Washington, I'll go get that weaponry, you know, <laughs> this bookseller. And uh, Washington's basically like, sure, kid, go ahead. Go for it. <laughs> and then suddenly, you know, a few weeks later, Henry Knox and his brother have built all these weird sleds to haul all these cannons over the Berkshire Mountains in winter back to Boston. And Washington has them um, in the middle of the night put up on top of this hill pointing down at Boston where the British are ensconced, you know, and yeah. they, they wake up uh. and they see all these cannons pointing down at them and they get on a ship for Canada right away and are out of there, you know. And Henry Knox becomes the head of the artillery. Of a wonder kid. Yeah, but he was a bookseller. As travelers, let's just talk travel for a moment. Sure. If you want to go to the sites of the American Revolution, what are some of the, the great images and artifacts and collections that you'd recommend? Well, let's see. From the Franco-American standpoint, you know, the high point of that alliance is at Yorktown when the French and American forces gather and get Cornwallis to surrender. And so there at Yorktown, there's Yorktown Battlefield where there's a French cemetery. Actually, there were more French sailors and soldiers at Yorktown than American ones. Mm. So um, that's a great battlefield. It's a national park to visit. With an information center to give mm-hmm. you some Yeah, context. and they also have Washington's tent, his military tent there, which wow. is pretty cool. Also, obviously, Independence Hall. You can't forget Independence Hall. You wrote that there's a a cool quote by Ben Franklin. Oh, well, when they had the Constitutional Convention after the war, Washington, the chair he was sitting in, it's probably my favorite artifact from that era. Ben Franklin said while they were, you know, these months of bickering, like about what the Constitution was going to be and what was going to be in it, he would look at Washington's chair and the carving of the sun on the back of Washington's chair. And Franklin would wonder, is it a setting sun or a rising sun? Meaning, like, <laughs> is this the end of this experiment or the beginning? And and Franklin said, you know, once they finally had this document cobbled together that it is a rising sun. It's amazing to think that there are these artifacts that survive. And, and you write about an artifact which is fascinating to me, and it was the key from the Bastille. Oh, and yeah, it ended up in, in the uh, United States. That's in Mount Vernon because Lafayette, he was in charge of, like, right at the beginning of the— revolution, he was in charge of this kind of this police force around Paris. And one of the things he was in charge of was the dismantling of the Bastille. He Which is ha- the big stony prison yeah. that the uh, revolutionaries tore down, mostly symbolically to commit themselves. Yeah. To. And he sends the key to Washington saying, like, we are we're doing it. We're revolting. You know, look at this. And then the key to the Bastille is now. And where is it exactly? It's in, the in Mount Vernon in Washington's house. And it's in kind of the hallway at Mount Vernon. You can see it on the tour. Oh, I love it. You have to look for it real, like, when you go on that tour, I don't know if you've been on the Mount Vernon tour, but they really shovel you through there. I mean, (laughs) I've had burrito orders that took longer than my tour of Mount Vernon, I think, but (laughs) it's in there. You just have to be focused. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Sarah Vowell. Her book is Lafayette in the somewhat United States. And, And Sarah, 
you wrote in your book that nowadays Lafayette is a place more than a person. Yeah, it was after that trip of his in 1824 and 25, everything started getting named after him. Towns and counties. And I mean, there was this monument to him in Pennsylvania near the Battle Brandywine site, um, which is, you could also visit, that was, I think, built in 1895, you know, after he'd been dead for decades. And 5,000 people show up to, you know, the inauguration of this, it looks like a lamppost in, like, Nowheresville country, Pennsylvania. So he was a really big deal. But I was I was also going to say about the places named after him, to me, the most meaningful is Lafayette Square, Lafayette Park across from the White House. And this has been since the suffragists, you know, a kind of capital of protest. And it's mm-hmm. where we, the people, yell at our presidents because it's right across from the White House. It's where the suffragists yelled at Woodrow Wilson And ever since then, it's where we protest and try to get our president's attention and not just us. People from other countries where they would get arrested for such behavior come to protest when their leaders are in town. And so maybe just think about that if maybe you don't like who lives um, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue right now. Just know that basically that person always has to live across from almost like the embodiment of an internet comment section, you know? <laughs> Lafayette. George H.W. Bush, oh. you know, was complaining about those damn drums while I was trying to have dinner, you know, protesting the Gulf War. So whoever becomes president has these noisy neighbors always, and it's the ones in Lafayette Park. Sarah Vowell, author of Lafayette in the Somewhat United States, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.